This is Thomas Wayne Riley, and welcome to the American Southwest. Episode 1, Buffalo Kingdom The buffalo never turned back, never gave up, kept on going ahead, whatever the danger, whatever the weather. That's a quote by the American writer and poet Stanley Vestal, who not only fought in France in World War I, but was also a professor of creative writing at my alma mater of the University of Oklahoma. That's not the only place where our interests overlap, though. At some point, in my late 20s, I became obsessed with bison to the point of designing a tattoo of one that now sits forever on my left forearm. What is it about these guys that so infatuate me and many other Americans? How have they become such a symbol of the American West and America in general? Early in 2021, I read a headline that got me excited, intrigued, and ultimately puzzled. Puzzled enough to want to make this podcast, to be honest. On the northern side of the Grand Canyon, a bison herd was running amok, destroying the delicate landscape and the cultural resources, like the ancestral Puebloan ruins, which I love to visit. I got my degree in archaeology, so the protection of these sites is very important to me, and should be to other Americans as well, I thought. But because of this destruction, the NPS decided, or National Park Service, decided to have a bison cull. In other words, they were going to allow volunteers to shoot and kill and harvest some of these animals. 45,000 people applied. 45,000. I personally didn't apply because I've never big game hunted before, but I plan on it. I love living bison, but I also love to fill my freezer with meat and make the coolest coat ever out of a hide. I obviously wasn't alone. Even the NPS was taken aback by that number. But then the media got a hold of it, and the internet mob began loudly complaining and calling for the park service to either leave them be or remove and resettle them. It wasn't a long-lasting uproar. I mean, there were more quote-unquote important things to complain about by the following news cycle, which was like five minutes. But it did get me thinking. Why do people care about this bison herd on the northern end of the Grand Canyon, a place where 99.9% .9 of the population have never been and never will go? I can almost guarantee most of the people calling for action have never even seen a live buffalo. I suppose I understand the outrage. We don't want to repeat the slaughter that Europeans, Americans, and Canadians unleashed upon these gentle giants. And we cringe at its association with our colonial and imperial past. I get it. But is that it? Are we allowing our current political landscape to dictate what's best for the cultural and biological wonderland of the Grand Canyon? I grew up in northern Georgia, 
And I don't think I'd ever even dedicated a single thought to a bison until I moved to Oklahoma at age 16. The first time I remember seeing a bison was at the Wichita Mountains Wildlife Refuge in southwest Oklahoma that first summer I lived there in 2003. The fascination didn't quite click yet, but the seeds were definitely planted. When friends or family members from back east would come visit us, we'd always pack two cars full and head there with the highlight of being the buffalo herd. Eventually, when I go there quite often in college to rock climb, I always sought out the big furry guys. I even remember the first picture of me taken with one. My roommate and another friend and I were hiking to Crab Eyes, this rock climbing spot that's pretty far out there, uh, to get some climbing in on a beautiful weekend morning when to our right, a lonesome bison was gobbling up some grass just about 30 yards away up the side of a little hill. I still remember getting more excited than I ought to have before getting closer than I ought to have, and in mock excitement, pointing towards him for the camera. Over a decade later, I take my niece and nephew to that same park on multiple occasions for the sole purpose of checking out those woolly buffalo. I like to think my influence is the reason my niece loves the big creatures, but it could also be the Oklahoma environment she's grown up in. The bison is the mascot for the Oklahoma City Thunder NBA team. It's also the mascot for North Dakota State University and the University of Colorado. It's the state animal of Oklahoma and Kansas, and it's the state mammal of Wyoming, which also sports one on its flag. The bison has even graduated to become the United States National Mammal. And every first Saturday in November is now National Bison Day. And you better believe I'm going to start celebrating that from here on out. 18 states have cities named Buffalo. And as Stephen Ronella points out in his fantastic book, American Buffalo, In Search of a Lost Icon, which I will be quoting from extensively, the most famous of these, Buffalo, New York, is the only one of these cities to not have had populations of buffalo, historically. Not to mention the oldest continuously operating distillery in the United States, Buffalo Trace, takes their name from them. Here's a quote I love from their label. Quote, The ancient paths of countless buffalo led America westward. Legendary explorers, pioneers, and settlers alike followed these trails, known as traces, through rugged wilderness to new lands, new adventures, and newfound freedom. End quote. They go on to claim that one such trace ran right through where their current distillery is located. When the sculptor, James Earl Fraser, came up with the buffalo nickel, he later said, quote, And in my search for symbols, I found no motif within the boundaries of the United States so distinctive as the American buffalo or bison. End quote. Scientifically, it's bison, but linguistically, it can absolutely be buffalo. I find myself often switching between the two with ease. Their scientific name is Bison Bison. And to be even more in-depth about their name, North American Bison can be further separated into two categories. Woods Bison, or Bison Bison Athabasca, and the aptly named Plains Buffalo, or Bison Bison Bison. While the Plains Buffalo have the better name, the Woods Buffalo are found to be about 10% heavier, have thicker fur, longer legs, and a more pointed beard, so they look a little cooler. But a bison's a bison, and I love them all. The first buffalo were native to Asia and Europe, where they ate the grass in Eastern Europe and Siberia. Eventually, though, they followed that grass across the Bering Land Bridge, or Beringia, during the Pleistocene, also known as the Ice Age, which technically was more like many Ice Ages because there were 17 of them during that 2 million year period. I love the Ice Age and all of its many massive mammals, like the Macedons, and the mammoths, the American lion, and the saber-toothed tiger, and of course, my personal favorite, the giant ground sloth. If you ever want to get a fantastic look 
at these now extinct creatures, head over to the Labria Tar Pits Museum in LA. They've got displays, models, and lots of fossils to enjoy. I freaking love that place. Back to the cold days, though. So horses and camels, actually native to North America, crossed over into Asia, while bison ancestors crossed over into North America. This is believed to have happened for the first time around 140,000 years ago. Once on the continent, they really enjoyed the massive sea of unparalleled quality grasslands that stretched south seemingly forever and which would allow them to thrive and evolve into what we now call the buffalo. By about 5,000 years ago, they had evolved from the bigger and often strange variations down to about the size we'd recognize today. One of those bigger and stranger ancestors was known as bison latifrons, or latifrons. I actually don't know. I've never heard it spoken. Now, this guy is awesome. First of all, he's huge. And secondly, his horns are an ungodly length of seven feet from tip to tip. And they were sharp. There's a fantastic bronze sculpture of one at the Denver Museum of Natural Science that I would love to have in my house. But I also suggest everyone go visit. Uh, I will put a picture of it on the website, which is theamericansouthwest.com. There's also a great chart on prehistoricfauna.com, which I will link that shows all of the bison in relation to a modern human. It's pretty fantastic. I really wish all of these guys were still around. Forget Jurassic Park, I want Pleistocene Park, which I'm actually fairly certain Russia is doing. Thankfully, and rather stunningly, we know exactly what an Ice Age bison looked like. Some poor soul we've now named Blue Babe was killed by an American lion and left on the tundra, where it stayed frozen for 36,000 years. Until it was found in Alaska by some gold miners. How do we know it died from an American lion? Because it still has the claw marks and bite puncture wounds visible on its carcass. I believe it even has coagulated blood in the wounds. It was so cold, though, that it and its still-pouring blood froze before the hunter could even finish the meal. Or really start it. And I expect that poor lion did not survive either. Although he was not found nearby. Wouldn't that be something? And speaking of meals, here's a great passage from Ranella. Quote, Dale Guthrie, a professor emeritus at the University of Alaska, cooked and ate part of the animal's neck. He means blue babe. He reported to be, and now he's quoting uh, Guthrie, Dale Guthrie, quote, well-aged, but still a little tough. End all quotes. Man, what people will do for science. Although, I mean, no. Well, yeah, I'd probably do it. I'd try it. You know, it's just well-aged. I don't know about the blue crystals, though. Ah, it could be spices. Anyways, Blue Babe did not fare well that cold day, but bison are actually pretty well-evolved to live life in harsh winters. They have, proportionate to their body size, the largest trachea of any large land mammal. So when it comes to breathing in a big, fresh breath of cold air, by the time it reaches a bison's lungs, that breath has been warmed. This helps keep the big beasts internally warm during winter. Then there's their super short eyelashes, which keep snow and ice from accumulating on their eye tissue. Modern cows don't have that luxury. They'll, they'll free, their eyes will freeze during bad weather in the wintertime. Those adaptations, along with their black skin and long, dark hair that absorbs the sun's rays, keeps them cozy in the long winter months. Not to mention their super thick fur, which is two to four times as thick as the average bovine cattle's. 
Their fur is said to be so thick and provide so much insulation that when snow lands on their shaggy hide, it will not melt the snow. Also, when there's feet of snow on the ground, they find food by digging with their huge head, thick horns, and massive neck and shoulder muscles beneath the snow to get that sweet, sweet grass. They can even dig as deep as four freaking feet. Stephen Ronella has a great story in American Buffalo about scientists trying to find the point at which an animal's metabolic rate changes in response to cold. Basically, they're just trying to find out their cold tolerance. He says, quote, Hereford cattle hit their critical temperature at 14 degrees Fahrenheit. The yak and the highland cattle hit theirs at negative 13 degrees Fahrenheit. At negative 22 degrees Fahrenheit, the buffalo's metabolic rate was still decreasing as an energy-saving strategy. The buffalo's critical temperature remains unknown because no one's gotten a box cold enough to find it. End quote. Bison are essentially migratory mammals. It seems that each bison belongs to a herd of about six individual animals to several hundred animals, which is quite a large disparity. That herd generally moves north in the summer and south in the winter, or up in altitude in the spring and down in the autumn. They would move slowly and as one large unit to an easier place in a fairly predictable manner. Or so it would seem. Because at the same time, bison can also be described by this lovely phrase by the Canadian historian Frank Gilbert Rowe, who said the bison's movements, quote, were utterly erratic and unpredictable and might occur regardless of time, place, or season, with any number, in any direction, in any manner, under any conditions, and for any reason, which is to say, for no reason at all, end quote. In September of 1784, five years before our greatest and first president was ever elected, George Washington headed west to Pennsylvania to check on some of his land. Along the way, though, he got lost on an obscure trail known locally as McCulloch's Path. This trail was one of the aforementioned buffalo traces, and according to Washington, who clearly had very little respect for the beast, that particular trail owed its origins to, quote, buffaloes, being no other than their tracks from one lick to another, and consequently crooked and not well chosen, end quote. Bison evolved to be too fast to be completely killed off by paleo-Indians, unlike their large neighbors, the giant ground sloths, mastodons, and mammoths. Actually, bison are one of the last megafauna to survive the Pleistocene, along with polar bears and moose. What's called the Rancho Labrian land mammal age effectively ended when those ancient peoples came south from Alaska and down into the Great Plains of Canada, the United States, and northern Mexico. Once those people arrived, the North American continent lost 50% of the large Ice Age mammals, and every species weighing over 4,000 pounds disappeared. Every one of those guys that you see on display at La Brea Tar Pits and in my dreams were gone. And that also included dozens of species between 400 and 4,000 pounds. Sure, the Earth's changing climate may have played a role in their untimely demise, but I believe that human hunting took care of 90% of those long-lost mega-creatures. Essentially, humans can hunt. We have technology and the capacity and the desire to hunt, and an animal being large and scary doesn't appear to matter. I ask the mammoths. Oh wait, you can't, because they're all gone, and have been for 10,000 years. Although, populations of them remained on islands that humans did not inhabit until less than 4,000 years ago, long after the pyramids had been built. What kept those guys alive? If the climate was changing, wouldn't they have also passed away? Of course it would seem that hunting a bison without a horse or a bow and arrow would be dangerous and exhausting, and it probably was, but we know that ancient Native Americans accomplished it. Just like they accomplished hunting mastodons and mammoths 
who were way larger. It would have been tricky, but we know they used multiple techniques, such as setting the prairie on fire, herding them towards water, buffalo jumps, and buffalo corrals. Buffalo corrals are basically they would steer buffaloes who were charging into an area using logs or roll, they'd roll boulders. They construct these wooden or rocky areas where the bison would be essentially reach a dead end to where the Native Americans would spear or addle addle them to death. Buffalo jumps are best described as a tall place from which humans would have forced a large number of bison to fall from. So instead of corralling them into an area, you are forcing them over the edge of a cliff or an embankment, or it could be a sinkhole in the prairie. In the Blackfoot tongue, buffalo jumps are known as pishkin. I have no idea if I'm saying that correct which roughly translates to deep blood kettle. Keep that description in mind. Before horses, killing bison most likely involved killing a lot of them, and all at once. And it probably took a lot of coordination practice and planning. But ultimately, it involved a lot of dead bison. There are a lot of these sites scattered around the country, and I've even come across one on the road, just north of the Black Hills, uh, a passive place called Vore Buffalo Jump National Historic Site. Unfortunately, at the time I was traveling to Devil's Tower, and racing a pretty massive storm that was brewing to the west, so I didn't stop, but one day I would like to. So at the bottom of these jumps, there are layers upon layers and thousands upon thousands of buffalo bones. It's estimated that the bone bed at Vor Buffalo Jump, the one I passed, is 25 feet deep, 100 feet in diameter, and contains upwards of 20,000 skeletal buffalo remains. But others nearby, all along the western edge of the Great Plains, are even larger. Head smashed in Buffalo Jump in Alberta, Canada's bone bed is 30 feet thick. Others have been described as being just as thick, but one whole mile wide. How did the horseless, bowless people of the Great Plains attract these bison to the edge of cliffs they certainly knew would be their demise? Rinella tells about an amazing group of Indians who described past skilled hunters that wore buffalo hides so convincingly that they were able to lead an entire herd to the edge of a cliff which would allow these skilled hunters to emerge, startle, overtake, and convince hundreds of the sure-hoofed animals to careen over the edge of a certain death cliff down to their impending doom. Now is the time where you should probably expel the notion you may have about Native Americans using every piece of the buffalo and not letting it go to waste. While they did use every piece of the buffalo, and I'll get into that later, they certainly didn't use every piece every time. It's time to expel the notion of the quote-unquote noble savage term that became popular half a century ago and that my parents were taught. Also, the phrase is a little inappropriate. Dan O'Brien in his fantastic book, Great Plains Bison, explains it perfectly. Quote, it is popular to glorify the land ethic of Native Americans by saying that they used all the parts of the buffalo and to negatively compare the 19th century bloodbaths where Europeans killed for a few body parts and wasted the rest. But if you can imagine a hot July afternoon in eastern Montana with a hundred dead and dying buffalo at the bottom of a cliff, you will realize that this notion is pure romanticism. End quote. He later goes on to describe, though, how in reality, nothing would have been wasted by these early Indians, even if they left an entire carcass completely intact. Because the wolves, the foxes, the birds, the bugs, and even the ground would have benefited from the carnage. And he's absolutely right. Much later, the Lakota Sioux would kill 1,500 bison in a single day and take only their tongues to trade for liquor with the Americans. But 
uh, more on that. The mass killing used in jumps, stage fires, and the corrals aren't the only way bisons were hunted, though. I will absolutely do a podcast on prehistoric Indians, and by that I mean Clovis and Folsom cultures in the future, because I'm obsessed with them. Uh, But it's important for our story of the bison today to briefly cover the Folsom points. So in 1908, in the town of Folsom, New Mexico, a massive flash flood carved deep into a river embankment and exposed thousands of Pleistocene bones, including a lot from a now-extinct buffalo. The amazing part of the find, though, were that spear points were found housed within the limbs, skulls, and in-between vertebrae and ribs. Actual human-made spear points. Uh, Except these spear points were super old. And while that didn't sit well with the godly folks of 1922, it certainly fascinates the heck out of me now. This and a subsequent find would actually push the occupation of the New World back to at least 12,000 years BC. Although it seems a constant drip of new finds and studies continues to push back that date even further, I honestly don't see why humans would have waited until 14,000 years ago to start following the bison, which was their only mean of sustenance. I mean, when the bison had been walking that route for 130,000 years by then, there's even a, a site in Siberia with tools and bones that's just a stone's throw away from the massive land bridge that would have been traversed by the prey they were hunting. And sure, maybe the, the animals coming the other way, they followed them, but I don't see why they would have waited 14,000 years. I don't see why it could have been 40,000 years ago. But there's no evidence for that yet, so I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. So, Folsom. I've actually been to Folsom, New Mexico. I've been to practically every corner of New Mexico because it's my favorite state, and it really is the land of enchantment. But one of my yearly treks back in 2016 out west, I was heading from Oklahoma City through the lovely Oklahoma Panhandle to Kaplan Volcano National Monument, which is obviously a fantastic place, and everyone should visit if you're ever in northeast, middle of nowhere, New Mexico. But after traveling through the Panhandle and crossing into the Oklahoma-New Mexico border and driving between mesas and red buttes, the road ended in Folsom which I had no idea what that would happen, but I instantly recognized the town from my archaeology classes. So I got excited, and I wanted to check out if there was a museum, but first of all, there wasn't a sign of really human occupation. And also, it was a Sunday in February. And it really is in the middle of nowhere. Uh, To finish the story of the Folsom Points, though, I'm going to extensively reference American Buffalo and Stephen Ranella's expertly crafted story. For his book, he actually went and saw the excavations and the place where the man who discovered him lived. That man, by the way, was an ex-slave named George McJunkin, who moved to the area and was already well-versed in archaeology and paleontology before the Great Flash Flood. He died in the Folsom Hotel, which I actually took a pretty haunting picture of on that February day. Uh, I'll put the picture on the site. But at the time of the bison hunt, which he discovered, it would have been a lot colder, and in New Mexico, there would even have been glaciers. It was 12,000 years ago, and besides glaciers, there was way more grass and water in the area. So this band of hunters corralled against the natural walls of rock and dirt about 32 cows and calves before killing all of them with their specialized spear points. Then the group, probably the only group in the entire area, stuck around to butcher the carcasses, removing only high-quality cuts and leaving the rest to rot, exactly like those at the Vore Buffalo Jump had done, and much like ancient Americans in the, in the future would do. There are now hundreds of sites 
just like this one in Folsom, scattered across the United States that tell a similar story. I mean, there's even a site in Kenosha, Wisconsin, that has, I believe, the oldest mammoth kill site east of the Mississippi and the most expertly carved, too, as in, as in they perfectly took all the meat off. It's very cool. I saw it at the Milwaukee Public Museum. Because of these super successful ancient hunters, it's believed that the bison actually experienced a bottleneck in population about 11,000 years ago, which is about the same time while all of their big cousins were dying. They disappeared from Florida, Northern California, Massachusetts, Southern Ontario, and many islands throughout North America. But once the super megafauna were all extinct, and with them the scary cats and bears and dire wolves, the bison had far fewer natural predators and competitors. Well, other than humans, of course, who absolutely turned their attention to the woolly beasts once their other massive sources of protein were gone. As Stephen Rinella quips about the Paleo-Indians, quote, after all, you wouldn't expect them to walk all the way back to Siberia, end quote. But thankfully for me and all of us, the bison survived against all odds. They definitely lost a lot of genetic diversity, but that would not be the last time these guys would be tested in such an extreme way. And unfortunately, we will get to that. It's not going to be pretty, and it starts shortly. The first European to see a bison would have been Hernan Cortez at a zoo in Tenochtitlan, which is the capital city of the Aztecs in present-day Mexico City. That buffalo that he saw was on display to showcase the immense wealth and power of the Mixtec emperor Montezuma II. Obviously, this story is fantastic because it shows that even pre-Columbian Americans were fascinated with bison too. They're not even native to that area of Mexico at all, and they're not seen for a couple hundred miles going north. I mean, we all know what happened to Montezuma and the Aztecs, which consequently is an eerily similar story to the bison, even down to the mixing of DNA with European invaders. The possible first sighting of bison by non-native Europeans in what is the United States, though, would have been by Alvar Nunez Cabeza de Vaca, when he was shipwrecked in the Gulf and walked through what is now Texas around 1530. He saw bison three separate times on that fascinating and horrible journey back to New Spain. I thought about doing a podcast over the Spanish in the Southwest, but you tangentially tell the story of the Spanish in the Southwest when you tell the story of so many other things that I will get into later, even on this podcast. So maybe I will just tell the story of the Spanish through the story of everything else in the Southwest. Uh, but back to the Spanish explorers. Let's talk about Coronado, who went to look for the seven cities of Cibola in 1540. He came upon the animals in Texas as well, except for this time it was the Panhandle. And somewhere on that sea of grass, he came upon a mound of bison bones he and his men estimated to be 18 feet wide, 10 feet tall, and 1,500 feet long that lined the bank of a lake. On the East Coast, in 1612, the Englishman Captain Samuel Argyll anchored his ship off the coast of Virginia traveled up the Potomac, and near what would become Washington, D.C., came upon a herd of bison, where his Indian guides promptly killed one for him. Later, Argyll and Devaca would claim how they enjoyed the taste of the meat, with Devaca even writing, quote, It seems to me they have more and better meat than cattle here in Spain. End quote. I absolutely agree with him. I love bison, and I made the switch to it at home as well. I now buy bison steaks, ground bison, bison osobuco, and jerky. I eat it myself, I grill it for friends, and I even serve it to my picky family. 
and everyone's always pleasantly surprised. There's a great quote I ran into in J.S. Holliday's The World Rushed In, where a man named William Swain, a 49er, wrote in his journal about that night's meal after a bison hunt, quote, Oh, if I could only send this great tender piece of tenderloin to my friends at home. Such delicious, juicy meat I have never before put under the operations of my masticating organs. End quote. This dude, instead of saying chew, said put under the operations of my masticating organs. Apparently eating bison inspires poetry, or something similar to it. American colonials frequently ran into the big beasts, and after the Revolutionary War and westward expansion, the hardy patriots continued to run into them west of the Appalachian Mountains as well. As a matter of fact, the Cumberland Gap was a buffalo trace before it was a gateway to, quote-unquote, the West. Uh, But even before Europeans in America, Indians were using the same highways, which were essentially buffalo traces, through seemingly impenetrable woods and forests. There was a 225-mile trace throughout Kentucky that the Indians themselves nicknamed, quote-unquote, the Buffalo Pass. Early Americans, free from the constraints put upon them by the crown, traveled westward into Ohio, Kentucky, and Tennessee to expand the new country using, and I'm going to quote Renella, buffalo trails instead of Indian trails because they were hoping to run into the one and not the other, end quote. But more importantly for the establishment and expansion of the United States, these same pioneers, explorers, hunters, and trappers follow the buffalo traces enough for them to become established routes, which would eventually become wagon paths, which would eventually become gravel roads, which would eventually become local state and interstate highways. We are basically driving on what were essentially buffalo traces. On their trek out west of the Promised Land, Mormon settlers lived off buffalo meat, sometimes exclusively. But they also often had their meager possessions and handcarts scattered from buffalo stampedes. Both Mormons and Gentiles, though, used buffalo chips or circular discs of dung to light fires for warmth and even cooking. William Swain, that 49er from earlier, would write, quote, Buffalo chips burn well when dry, but if damp or wet, are smoky and almost fireproof. They emit a delicate perfume, end quote. Hmm. Imagine cooking over a fire made of crusty crap. Speaking of crap... Buffalo dung and urine are super important for the health of the Great Plains. They both contain important sources of nitrogen, calcium, phosphorus, sulfur, and magnesium for other plants and animals and even the microorganisms found within the soil. Bison chips also spread seeds, fertilize the soil, and attract tons of other species. The NPS states that as many as 300 species of insects will live in one bison paddy, and 1,000 individual insects will occupy that same paddy from the time it's deposited until its removal. One important species that helps with this removal is the dung beetle, which recent studies have suggested creates herbage growth when they're surrounded by elk, deer, and bison. The bison's importance on the plains, and truthfully in all of its territory, can never be overstated. Although I've seen numbers ranging from 75 to 40 million bison pre-European contact, recent science has suggested their range and feeding limit is no more than 30 million, which is a ton of animals. But remember, they stretched from the Atlantic to the Pacific and from Alaska down to Mexico. Well, that is until the Pueblo Revolt of 1680. I'm going to cover this in yet another podcast, but I'll sum it up briefly here because it's super important to our story. By 1680, 
The Spanish had been in the New World for almost 200 years, and for 100 of those years, the Spanish had been in New Mexico alone. During that time, they'd invaded the Native American Puebloan residents constantly with soldiers, settlers, and missionaries, who waged a never-ending campaign to convert both religiously and secularly the Indians to the European way of life. They outlaw Kachina dances, mask-wearing, and any religious ceremony that wasn't Catholic. The persecution was extremely severe and taxing. It got so bad that when a Spanish official named Nicolas de Aguilar tried to stop it, he was brought up on charges of heresy and tried before the Inquisition. This whole time, though, the Spanish had a strict policy of not giving horses to the Pueblo people, much like we do not want rogue nations to get the atomic bomb. The horse was basically their weapon of mass destruction. It separated the haves and the have-nots. The haves being the Spanish, the have-nots being the Puebloans. Eventually, after a rough drought in 1670 and some devastating raids by the Apache, the Puebloans had had it. A prominent member of one of the many Pueblos named Pope led the revolt on August 10th, killing about 400 Spaniards, 21 of the 23 missionaries, and most importantly for our story, stole the Spaniards' horses. This single act changed the course of American Indian and consequently American Buffalo history forever. In the year 1630, not a single Native American in what is now the United States could mount riders. By 1700, every Texas tribe rode. The ability and ease of mastering the Buffalo had begun. After the rebellion, Horse numbers exploded into the tens of thousands, and eventually by the year 1750, there were probably a million wild horses galloping across the western United States. Remember, horses originally evolved in North America, but have been lost from the continent for tens of thousands of years, so it shouldn't be surprising that their numbers exploded. And with those exploding numbers came the rise of the Plains Indians horse culture and buffalo-related warfare. Once weak tribes almost overnight, became the fiercest people on the land because of the horse. Tribes that could barely farm and chose not to, often begging neighbors for food, packed up their meager belongings, severed what little ties they had to their land, and chose the horse as their home. Enter the Empire of the Summer Moon, which is also the name of an exceptional book by S.C. Gwynn. Future Podcast Alert. The Empire of the Summer Moon refers to the 240,000 square miles of the Southern Plains region of northern Mexico, most of Texas, eastern New Mexico and Colorado, Oklahoma, and southern Kansas, which was dominated by the most fearsome people to have possibly ever lived on the planet, the Comanche. Dan Carlin may disagree with me, but the Comanche's prowess on the horse rivaled or even exceeded that of the Great Khans, much further to the west across the Pacific Ocean. S. C. Gwen says, quote, Such imperial dominance was the product of more than 150 years of deliberate, sustained combat against a series of enemies over a singular piece of land that contained the country's largest buffalo herds. End quote. They fought colonial Spanish, Mexicans, Apaches, Utes, Osages, Pawnees, Tonkawas, Navajos, Cheyennes, Arapahos, Tejanos, and eventually Americanos. That list is not exhaustive. They were so proficient at killing that when early Americans began illegally descending upon Tejas, the Spanish and subsequent Mexican governments would assign these foolish Americans lands in between the Comanches and the Tejano cities. 
knowing full well that the Comanches would raid, rape, torture, carve up, desecrate, and kill those Anglos. The Texas Rangers, the Texas Rangers, were established to specifically deal with them, and the largest army force the United States government ever created to deal with Indians was created to deal with the Comanches. They are legendarily badass, but they were also extremely tied to the bison. As a matter of fact, Native Americans' connection to the buffalo might have been the single strongest connection between an animal and a group of humans in the entire history of humanity since the prehistoric times. S.C. Gwynn writes, quote, Before the arrival of the horse, there were peoples whose lives were based almost entirely on the buffalo. The horse did not change this. They merely became much better at what they had always done. End quote. He goes on to write that the horse, quote, virtually guaranteed that they would not evolve into more civilized agrarian societies. End quote. Old tin bears of the Comanches would later say, I love the open prairie, and I wish you would not insist on putting us on a reservation. The Comanche only wanted two things, to make war and to hunt the buffalo. But by 1800, the Comanche themselves would be increasingly desperate for bison. In that same year, west of the Rocky Mountains, the buffalo would disappear. Then, in 1832, Sioux Indians killed what were possibly the last bison east of the Mississippi River in northern Wisconsin. And 50 years later, they'd be nearly extinct on the Great Plains. And with the loss of the bison herds, it's estimated that 95% of the grizzly bear's range was also reduced. But not because they depended on hunting the bison for the bulk of their food. Buffaloes have very few natural predators, which is partly the reason they've reduced in size of body and horns since the Pleistocene. Grizzlies rarely attack them, although I have seen a gnarly video on YouTube of a fight in Yellowstone, which the grizzly eventually won, but it was long and it was grueling. Black bears may prey on baby bison, but it's extremely rare. Even more rare, but not unheard of, would be a similar situation with coyotes and even mountain lions. All of these predators Best chances, though, involve a newborn calf that hasn't quite mastered the clumsy way a buffalo walks, which is where a pack of wolves is best suited to take advantage. Wolves are probably a bison's biggest natural predator, and the wolves' favorite prey are newborn bison. If the wolves go for adults, it's usually in the wintertime, and it's accomplished by breaking up the herd and going after the slow or weaker ones that they separate, um, and then they bite their legs and bring them down, whereupon the whole pack of wolves can tear them apart. Either that, or in deep snow, where the lighter wolves can hunt from above on the packed snow while the buffalo are plowing through it with their massive head. One of the main reasons why the grizzlies lost so much of their range was because once the buffalo numbers began to dwindle, they stopped dying by the thousands upon thousands by drowning in the various rivers and waterways of the Great Plains. It's actually kind of insane how many buffaloes just straight up died by themselves. So, from here on out, it's going to get pretty rough uh, with, with the killing of the bison. It, it'll turn back around, but for now, this pretty much starts the really sad loss of 30 million. So just, just a warning. Um, so the insaneness of the bison killing themselves, in the 1800s, they would drown in such large numbers that they dam the Missouri River. And there's no reason to believe this hadn't happened for thousands of years before then. It's probably what Coronado saw. A herd has also been seen getting struck by lightning, whereupon a hundred of them died instantly. There are recordings 
of both whites and Indians seeing thousands burn to death in brush fires. Tornadoes would carry them away and burst their eyeballs from the air pressure. Early explorers of the Great Plains even recorded having trouble leading their horses through fields of endless bleached white bones. Teddy Roosevelt would later write, quote, No sight is more common on the plains than that of a bleached buffalo skull, end quote. Obviously, these deaths are nothing compared to the slaughter that this story is about to dive into, which has long-lasting trickle-down effects. Along with the grizzly, wolves, lions, birds, bats, frogs, fox, turtles, dung beetles, butterflies, insects, and even the very ground itself, which was shaped by and dramatically altered by 14,000 years of bison intervention, all either declined, disappeared, or were permanently changed. Buffalo wallows are one such ecological impact that disappeared with their destruction. Buffalo wallows are spots on the plains where a buffalo would rest and, well, wallow by rolling around on the prairie floor enough to create a small crater, which after a rain would collect water. These little ponds, known beautifully as ephemeral aquatic ecosystems, supported life such as frogs and insects, which thrive since there's no fish in these tiny ponds. S.C. Gwynn refers to them in his book and says that in 1865, while the Army's 4th Cavalry was searching for the Comanches, quote, they were dismayed to learn that their principal water sources were buffalo wallow holes that according to Carter were, and it's now quoting Robert G. Carter, who wrote a book called On the Border with McKinsey, the leader of the 4th Cavalry, quote, stagnant, warm, nauseating, odorous with smells, and covered with green slime that had to be pushed aside, end all quotes. That does not actually sound very appealing. Even later, homesteading Americans did not like the ponds either and would fill them in or use the hard mud at the bottom of them for their roofs. I know this is a podcast about the bison and not about the bison's destruction, and I know it already warned you, but unfortunately, so much of the big animal story is its death and near extinction. Seemingly multiple times. I mean, we've already covered one almost extinction. Thankfully, though, they are still around. And by knowing their history, it becomes even easier to celebrate them as the symbols that they are. And I'm grateful that they're still around. But some of that gratefulness comes from knowing their story and their death. Speaking of which, with more modern Native Americans... The way they killed the bison was somewhat different to how their ancestors accomplished the task. The main difference is that Plains Indians had the unbelievably effective technology of the bow and arrow and the horse. By the introduction of the horse, buffalo jumps had become obsolete, even before that. But other more ingenious methods began to appear. The simplest of those methods being riding up on a fleeing buffalo and driving a 14-foot lance in between its ribs. The Comanches would be so good at training their horses that once they fired their bows, the horses would jerk away from the now-shot buffalo at the sound of the bowstring. This is important because, as S.C. Gwynn puts it, quote, a healthy buffalo could run nearly as fast as an ordinary horse for two miles, end quote. Other means of killing included the dressing up in a wolf or coyote skin and slowly approaching the unperturbed bison only to plunge an arrowhead or spear into its heart from feet away. Then the hunter would steal the cow's child when the calf wouldn't flee from the corpse, take it home to use as practice for the hunter's children, and eventually let them kill it. He would then skin the calf 
and where it is camouflaged for further bison-related murders. I did apologize. Started. Also, Indian hunters were known to drive bison into the snow during the winter months, and using snowshoes, rapidly approach the slowly moving beasts, easily overtaking them and stabbing them from atop the snow as they slowly plowed their way to their inevitable deaths, much like the wolves did. Indians forced buffaloes onto lightly frozen rivers, where they'd break through the ice and float downstream to the waiting and no doubt frozen limbs of the rest of the tribe. They would also force buffaloes into non-frozen rivers where the beasts were so slow that the hunters could swim up to them and slit their throats before letting their slowly dying carcasses float to the waiting arms of the tribe. Sorry for the graphicness. And, and let it be known that for their bulk and size and despite their proclivity for drowning in large numbers, bison are rather good swimmers. The Indians would also light the prairie on fire and as the buffalo swarmed, and crammed in fear through small corridors that the Indians would leave unburned, they'd pick the bison off with their bows and arrows in considerable numbers. They would even use their own bodies as a collective noose to slowly tighten around a group of buffalo before they would kill them. And I'm going to quote Ranella. As they tried to escape, often so close that the hunter could pluck out his used arrow from the side of the animal before it fell over and broke it. End quote. Even still, the Native American's favorite way to kill some bison was with arrows and bullets from the back of a horse. In 1820, the Matisse of Canada went on a buffalo hunt and brought back one million pounds of dried meat. In other words, they had killed 50,000 buffalo on the Great Plains that summer alone. 50,000. That was just one group. Eventually, where they hunted in Montana and the Dakotas, the Matisse, ran out of buffalo. They didn't do this slaughter out of sheer hatred for the beast, though. Here's a long quote from S.C. Gwen. Buffalo was the food the Comanches loved more than any other. They ate steaks cooked over open fires or boiled in copper kettles. They cut the meat thin, dried it, and stored it for the winter and took it on long trips. They ate the kidneys in the paunch. Children would rush up to a freshly killed animal, begging for its liver and gallbladder. They would then squirt the salty bile from the gallbladder onto the liver and eat it on the spot, warm and dripping blood. If a slain female was giving milk, Comanches would cut into the udder bag and drink the milk mixed with warm blood. One of the greatest delicacies was the warm, curdled milk from the stomach of a suckling calf. End quote. If short on water, the Comanches would also drink the blood straight from a slain buffalo. I can't think that the Comanches were the only buffalo-dependent tribe to engage in these practices either. The buffalo literally meant life to so many Native Americans and later American groups that they were not desecrating these buffalo by doing this. At the same time, though, all over the United States and even Europe, buffalo hides were in extremely high demand. Upwards of 200,000 a year were being bought from the Indians. The uses for buffalo hides at that time were seemingly limitless. They could be used on saddles, as mattresses, coats, blankets, shoes, and more. They were especially popular as throw blankets for Easterners' laps as they traveled out west, where the bison would soon disappear. The bison's tongues were also popular pickled back east, as was their dried meat, and the Indians were handing them over at trading posts by the ton. But before trading ever happened with the Americans, the Indians themselves had truly limitless uses. Stephen Ranella has a great couple of paragraphs that instead of paraphrasing, I'm going to quote, strap in. 
Indians would use untanned skins or rawhide to make buckets, mortars, war shields, drums, splints, cinches, lariats, packing straps, knife sheaves, saddles, blankets, stirrups, masks, ornaments, quirts, snowshoes, boats, and moccasin soles. They'd use tan buffalo hides to make moccasin uppers, blankets, beds, winter coats, shirts, leggings, dresses, belts, bridles, quivers, backrests, bags, tapestries, sweat lodge covers, teepee covers, and teepee liners. The skin from the hind leg could be taken directly off the buffalo and used as emergency footwear. Indians could make baby cradles with tanned buffalo hides, and they'd make buffalo skin sacks for carrying their babies on trips. He continues, quote, Indians would use buffalo hair, particularly the hair on the buffalo's forehead, to stuff pillows, dolls, sleeping pads, and medicine balls. They'd braid buffalo hair into ropes and... You know what? I'm going to end the quote there, actually. I could go on, but I think you get the point. They made dice, toys, every tool imaginable from the bones. They used the tongue, organs, fat, meat, hooves, noses, tendons, literally every single thing on that bison could be used for damn near every single purpose you could think of. Even the skulls, which symbolized rebirth to some plains tribe, were kept and venerated with some of those tribes, arranging them in circles or lines on the open prairie, or even in front of their villages. I personally have a bison skull I purchased in Custer, South Dakota, hanging in my kitchen on the wall. I have a bison skull figurine made from bison bones. There's a bison skull magnet on my fridge. I understand the Indians' reverence for the bison skull. They are quite beautiful. The Indians, though, weren't breaking down the bison into every single one of these components every single time they killed one of the beasts. And now that Americans had come to the Indians' land, the Indians' only option was to capitalize on, on, on the bison, and that's what they were doing. They were making small fortunes in trading and in currency, which further allowed them to get more high. Bison hunting became so somehow even more central to the Great Plains tribes that it increased their intertribal warfare. This increased the procurement of slaves for wives, and polygamy exploded among the leaders and strongmen of the plains. After all, the hides didn't process themselves. Making leather has been pretty consistent for 40,000 years. And unfortunately, it involves copious amounts of feces, brains, urine, beating, stomping, soaking, putrefying, fermenting, and tree bark. It was hard and stinky work. But throughout the 19th century, leather makers in Europe and on the east coast of the U.S. were constantly improving the process and inventing new ones. By the 1870s, a new way to convert buffalo hides into commercial leather spelled the beginning of the end for the buffalo as their hides were now in demand on factory floors and the machines as the Industrial Revolution's wheels began turning. And speaking of turning wheels, the rapid explosion of and extension into the Great Plains of the railroad lines was yet another nail in the bison's rapidly sealing coffin. In 1869, the first transcontinental railroad was joined in Utah, linking the two coasts forever and creating essentially two separate herds of buffalo, a northern and a southern herd. The southern herd became even more fractured with further encroachments by other rail lines as well. All of these lines carried meat and hides back east and men with guns to the plains. Not only did the trains themselves hit and kill bison, but rail lines sold tickets for sharpshooters that could just take them out from the train. I actually find this particular method of extermination the worst. Not a single piece of that animal is harvested when it's shot from the back of a moving train. In Holiday's book, I ran into a quote from a 49er, so about 20 years before their time on the railway. 
But this gold rusher heading west wrote after witnessing hunters and his and other groups chase down a herd that, quote, not less than 50 buffalo were slaughtered this morning, whereas not three in all were used. Such wanton destruction of buffalo, the main dependence to the Indians for food, is certainly reprehensible. But the desire by the immigrant of engaging once at least in a buffalo chase can scarcely be repressed. End quote. Killing bison was reprehensible because the Indians depended on them to stay alive? A white man wrote that? My, how attitudes would change. Bison can ram through barbed wire fence without taking a scratch. And they can destroy railroad lines and telephone poles. They're tough hombres for sure. And Ranella mentions how the buffalo, unable to stop themselves from rubbing against the telegraph toothpick poles that dotted the landscape throughout the Great Plains in the 1800s, would often completely topple the wooden pillars when a herd would wander through. Eventually, someone out east suggested putting painful spikes on the poles to stop the bison from rubbing and snapping them. But this apparently only made the bison rub even harder. You have to remember, before Americans, huge amounts of the Great Plains looked entirely different. S.C. Gwen puts it this way, quote, The contrast between the dense eastern woodlands and the quote-unquote big sky country of the west would have been stark. A traveler going west would have seen nothing like open prairie until he hit the 98th meridian, whereupon in many places he would have been literally staring out of a dark, grim brother's forest at a treeless plain. It would have seemed to him a vast emptiness, end quote. Mostly because of the Dust Bowl, but even before that, there were massive tree planting campaigns all along the interior of the country. Prior to that, though, trees did not exist in the Great Plains. I remember walking through the Student Union of uh, University of Oklahoma and seeing photographs from the 1890s and early 1900s that showed a completely different landscape of the campus than the one I was used to. There was nary a tree in sight in any direction in the aerial photographs. The campus and surrounding area was devoid of bark and leaves. The same goes for old pictures of Oklahoma City or Guthrie, the first capital. Occasionally, along creeks and rivers throughout the Great Plains, trees pop up, but ultimately it was a massive treeless sea of grass that Coronado said was, quote, as bare of landmarks as if we were surrounded by the sea. Here the guides lost their bearings because there is nowhere a stone, hill, tree, bush, or anything of the sort, end quote. A terrifyingly empty sea of grass with no landmarks that had the most inhospitable climates in North America, with brutal heat, freezing winters, constant blistering wind, frequent droughts, towering lightning-spawning thunderstorms, and tornadoes. That's the Great Plains. That was the Buffalo's home by the 1800s. At the Wichita Mountains in Oklahoma, I once witnessed a bison rub his rump against a pole, a singular pole. I'm actually not even sure what the pole was used for, except maybe to be rubbed up against by the bison. Although I, th I think it was like a don't park here pole. But I sat and watched this guy rub his big body on this pole for about five minutes before I decided I needed to get going. But his sheer joy was cracking me up. His lips would curl back and his tongue would stick out as he rubbed back and forth to fix that itch. Obviously, I took a picture and you can see it on the side. So when telegraph poles were introduced onto this treeless sea of grass, the bison took full advantage of its ass-scratching qualities. Clearly, the railroad barons, the imperial government, and the progress of America could not stand for this complete lack of respect for private property. Not to mention those pesky Indians who hunted those wasteful destroyers. Something had to be done. 
The Indian's love and desire to hunt buffalo caused, quote, the gradual decadence of the slight civilization which the people had acquired, end quote. That was said by writer and scientist Nathaniel Shaler, who couldn't understand why the Indians wouldn't adopt agriculture. Actually, it seemed all Europeans, and eventually American pioneers, settlers, priests, and soldiers, couldn't comprehend why the Indians refused to give up their nomadic lifestyle, settle down, accept Jesus, and farm. French traders, Jesuits, the Spanish, and later Mexicans, and the Americans would all spend inordinate amounts of time complaining about and trying to convince the Plains Indians to quit hunting buffalo and adopt their European way of life. In Rennell's book, he cites a Kentuckian who said, quote, Buffaloes were so plenty in the country that little or no bread was used, but that even the children were fed on game. The facility of gaining would prevent the progress of agriculture until the poor, innocent buffaloes were con completely extirpated, and the other wild animals much thinned, end quote. That would ultimately become the plan, eliminate the bison. While competition with bovine and horses, Native Americans and settlers, drought, railroads, the advent of barbed wire, and the destruction of the bison's environment would all definitely take a toll on them, the main executioners were the U.S. Army, hide hunters, and manifest destiny. In October of 1867, the Treaties of Medicine Lodge were signed between the U.S. government and 5,000 Kiowa, Comanche, Cheyenne, and Arapaho from the Great Plains. The government wanted to protect those railroad workers, miners, and settlers steadily trickling west through the Arkansas River Valley, while the Indians wanted to protect their buffalo hunting grounds to the south of the Arkansas River. Eventually, the government gave the Indians their hunting rights, but with the caveat of, quote, so long as the buffalo may range thereon in such numbers as to justify the chase, end quote. That is quite the caveat. Realizing the only way to quote, unquote, civilize these buffalo hunting bands of Indians was to take away their buffalo, the U.S. Army began to take an active role in their slaughter using the same generals and tactics they beat the Confederacy with. They burned the prairie, they decimated the landscape, and they killed the buffalo. But even that was taking too long and using too many resources, so the army began sponsoring civilian American and European hunters to do the dirty work for them. Colonel Richard Dodge urged a buffalo hunter once to, quote, kill every buffalo you can. Every buffalo dead is an Indian gone, end quote. General Philip Sheridan once commented, quote, these men have done in the last two years more to settle the vexed Indian question than the entire regular army has done in the last 30 years. They, meaning the hunters, are destroying the Indians' commissary. For the sake of a lasting peace, let them kill, skin, and sell until the buffalo is exterminated. End quote. William Tecumseh Sherman is a man who probably doesn't need an introduction, but seeing as how I'm from Georgia, I'm going to give him one anyways. I'm not biased in any way, mind you. Sherman was a man from Ohio named after a famous Shawnee chief by the name of Tecumseh. It's been said that Tecumseh was his actual given name, but when he was baptized around age 8 or 9, the priest gave him the name William, which apparently stuck, almost as if Tecumseh didn't much care for the Indian name. Eventually, Sherman would join the army, be in California instead of Mexico during that war, resign, only to rejoin in 1861 when the Civil War broke out. He'd soon have a mental breakdown in Kentucky that the Cincinnati commercial would describe as him going quote-unquote insane, before recuperating and marching south to, and I'm quoting Sherman, 
make Georgia howl, end quote. He would succeed in that by looting, stealing, murdering, and burning every structure he came across that wasn't a house on his famous march to the sea from Atlanta to the Atlantic. And 160 years later, Georgians are still howling. Because of this and his later exploits, the British historian and military theorist B.H. Liddell Hart would dub him, quote, the first modern general, end quote. Congratulations. After his rape of Georgia, he became the architect of the post-war army in the West and member of the Peace Commission of 1867 to 1868, also known as the Taylor Commission, which had its stated goal as, quote, to identify and remove the causes of hostility and attempt to consolidate all the Plains Indians on reservations, end quote. Boy, did Sherman have some ideas for that. Key among them was the extermination of the buffalo. While speaking about the Sioux's insistence on hunting on their own lands at the Republican River, Sherman said, quote, I think it would be wise to invite all the sportsmen of England and America there this fall for a grand buffalo hunt and make one grand sweep of them all, end quote. Sherman figured if they could replace the buffalo with cattle, the Plains Indians would settle down. Except, no. What he actually said is that cattle would be a, quote, potent agency in having in so short a time replaced the wild buffaloes by more numerous herds of tame cattle and by substituting for the useless Indians, the intelligent owners of productive farms and cattle ranches, end quote. With regards to cattle replacing buffalo, I'm now going to quote a book called Frontiers, A Short History of the American West by Robert V. Hine and John Mack Farragher. In 1880, Buffalo in Montana far outnumbered the 250,000 cattle. Three years later, the buffalo had disappeared and the number of range stock had increased to 600,000, end quote. Sherman would win this war too, and just as brutally. My feelings on Sherman and the way the Army dealt with the Native Americans and the buffalo should be obvious to the listener, but I'm going to say it anyways. I disagree with the policies and how they were employed. I disagree with the theft and murder and slaughter and lying. But I am glad the United States of America exists. And I love the Southwest and the West. I have lived in Georgia, which was once home to the Muscogee and Cherokee, I lived in Oklahoma, which before it became the place of forced resettlement was home to the Wichita and Comanche and others, and I currently live in territory that the Illinois and the Winnebago would have called home. Theodore Roosevelt summed it up rather succinctly when he said the bison's, quote, destruction was the condition precedent upon the advance of white civilization in the West, end quote. I'm white, and I live in the West. So it wouldn't be fair for me to lament the evils of our ancestors while simultaneously taking full advantage of the fruits of their labors. But this is a podcast about bison. So I won't go too much into the Indian Wars and their consequences, but I will one day. I am proud to be an American, although I wish it hadn't been at the expense of hundreds, if not thousands, of indigenous tribes and nearly 30 million buffalo. I'll leave it at that. For now. So, while these policies were harsh and cruel, they were effective. And only decades earlier, these same Plains Indians the military was trying to wipe out were using these same tactics against their Indian enemies themselves. As Ronella puts it, quote, For tribes west of the Rocky Mountains, such as the Nez Perce and Flatheads, it was a rite of passage for young men to kill buffalo on lands claimed by the Blackfeet. End quote. These affairs could actually escalate into genocide, where the Blackfeet would murder entire enemy villages right down 
to the infants and dogs if they caught someone killing their buffalo. And meanwhile, on the plains, tribes would often travel through another's hunting grounds, kill every buffalo they found, and leave them to rot on the ground where they died, which is exactly what the buffalo hunters were doing by the 1880s. But in numbers, the indigenous Americans couldn't fathom. Most bison killed by the hunters were stripped of hides and left to rot or be fed upon by the rapidly expanding wolf population. Wolves were said to get so fat following hide hunters that they not only tamed themselves by sitting near camps waiting for scraps, but that they would be so weighed down after gorging themselves that Native Americans were able to run them down and kill them with knives. In the end, the massive wolf population, though, would die right alongside the bison. Not to be left out, though, as the U.S. Army and its swarm of buffalo hunters were destroying every beast they could find, the Indians also began killing more extensively in a sad twist of fate. Um, one of my least favorite images of this entire massacre, this entire period, is of the men standing on the enormous 30-foot-tall and seemingly endless pile of bison skulls that were soon to be ground up and made into fertilizer uh, near Detroit, Michigan. Those skulls were brought to the railroads by both white Americans and American Indians. And while it's a haunting picture, it does give a sickening but necessary perspective on the era. Dodge City, Kansas alone housed more than 2,000 hide hunters, including Buffalo Bill and Wild Earp, both of which I plan on doing a future episode about. Ranella has a great quote about the particular type of man that made up the hide hunters, though. Quote, These fellows were not stay-at-home dad types. They were Confederate soldiers escaping the shame of Reconstruction. They were Union soldiers escaping the boredom of victory. They were orphans. They were wanted alive for fraud here, wanted dead for murder there. End quote. S. C. Gwynn, would say they were, quote, on the whole, a nasty lot. They were violent, alcoholic, illiterate, unkept men who wore their hair long and never bathed, end quote. They would be covered in oils, fats, and grease. Not to mention blood. They'd throw their clothing over ant mounds so that ants could kill the lice they were infected with. They stank badly. And they hated the Indians. These were some very colorful people. Wyatt Earp, for instance, was a tough man who ran away at 13 to join the Union Army, only to have his father find him and bring him back to tend to the family's 80-acre farm. At 13, you can't fight, but you have to tend this 80-acre farm. Later, Wyatt Earp would steal a horse, be accused of being a pimp, get arrested, become a lawman, get fired, get into fights, become a lawman again, be accused of corruption, get into more fights. His wife opened a brothel. He led teams of horses in dangerous territory of Arizona and California. He'd become famous for the shootout, you know, the one in Tombstone, just pictured Kurt Russell in his second best mustache. And somewhere in there, Earp was a hide hunter in Dodge City. Although, that claim is a little dubious. But one hide hunter's claim that isn't dubious was William Frederick Buffalo Bill Cody, who bragged about killing 4,280 buffalo in an 18-month period for the rest of his life. They weren't all as good as Buffalo Bill. Or, good may, good may not be the correct term here. They were not all as proficient as Buffalo Bill, these hide hunters, but there were 2,000 of them, and they'd eventually exterminate all the creatures from that area. Some of the men's claims are almost unbelievable, but are seemingly true, with one of the most outrageous ones being a man named Bond, Brick Bond, who killed 250 in a single day. But nothing that I've read beats Tom Nixon, who claimed to have killed 
3,235 days, which makes Buffalo Bill's number seem tame. From those plains outside of Dodge City, the hunters killed 5 million beautiful bison in two years. S.C. Gwen quotes a scout who said, In 1872, we were never out of sight of the buffalo. In the following autumn, while traveling over the same district, the whole country was whitened with bleached and bleaching bones. End quote. At some point, the hide hunters would have to continue moving further westward towards the Texas Panhandle, where they'd break the Medicine Lodge Treaty of 1867, setting off an eventual confrontation with the Comanche and Northern Plains Indians over the buffalo. Those hide hunters, though, would work in teams, be out for days at a time with enough provisions, coffee, bullets, and their 50 caliber extremely effective Sharps rifle, and attempt to find entire herds. That main herd near Dodge City, by the way, was reported to be 50 miles deep and 25 miles wide. Once a herd was located, the hide hunters would take out as many buffalo as they can before the herd catches wind and moves on, or at worst, stampedes. Oftentimes, though, because the bison had no knowledge of Sharps rifles, when one of their family members or friends dropped dead suddenly, they simply would not care and continue grazing. S.C. Gwynn even calls them stupefyingly easy to kill. Sometimes, though, when a bison is injured, and if it's a bull, other bulls nearby will sense that it is weak, and they will gore it. They will effectively try and put that guy out of his misery. I heard that on a podcast of a person who hunted one. He saw it with his own eyes. Bison can be aggressive, and they can be rude as hell. That reminds me of, of the video of the news anchor setting up his shot at Yellowstone, who, it was a recent, I think it was like 2020, who after seeing approaching bison goes, oh no, I ain't messing with you. Oh no, nuh-uh. Uh, that's, that's a, bison can be lethal and unpredictable. So he, he was on onto something there. And the hide hunters knew that too. Buffaloes are absolutely capable of going from a standing position to 30 miles per hour in a matter of seconds. In Jack Ballard's Bison Falcon Pocket Guide, he gives a thrilling story of Harvey Wallbanger, the fastest buffalo in the West. Quote, The male bison was subsequently entered into numerous exhibition races around the United States, winning 76 of 92 contests against racehorses. End quote. Nuh-uh, I ain't messing with you. At the closing of that first hide hunter year of 1871, 500,000, half a million buffalo hides were on trains heading east. By 1878, the days of the hide hunters in that region were over. In 1881, there'd be 5,000 of them in Miles City, Montana, over twice as many as there were in Dodge. But by 1883, there'd be only about 1,000 buffalo left in the area, and a lot of them fled to the Black Hills, where Sitting Bull and the Sioux killed every last one of them. Theodore Roosevelt said, quote, For many long years after the buffalo die out from a place, their white skulls and well-worn roads remain as melancholy monuments of their former existence. End quote. In American Buffalo, Ronella extensively covers all the various and curious and interesting ways that buffalo bones can be used and were used after the slaughters. Obviously, I highly recommend his book, but I'll highlight some of them. Buffalo bones were used for American and English produced porcelain to give it a nice whiteness. Ground-up buffalo bones were used to make sugar more shiny, and wine less cloudy. Ground bones were also used as polishing agents, baking powders, to help refine minerals, and as fertilizer. Ronella says of one such fertilizer company that, quote, 
managed to sell a lot of the product to homesteaders on the Great Plains who were trying to produce corn and wheat on lands recently abandoned by buffalo. End quote. Isn't it ironic? Buffalo bones got in the way of tilling, and sometimes they'd be so thick on the ground that travelers claimed it looked like fresh snow. The bones would be burned for fuel, and later they'd be sold for $8 a ton. Piles of bones began to appear at railway hubs, like the aforementioned Boneville near Detroit. Then there's this staggering figure when Ella says, quote, The Empire Carbon Works in St. Louis processed 1.25 million tons of buffalo bones during the buffalo bone era. It paid on average $22.50 a ton. That's over $28 million paid out for buffalo bones, which came from perhaps 125 million skeletons or more than four times the number of buffalo that has ever existed at any one time, end quote. That is staggering. He goes on to describe how once the plains had been picked clean and a bone shortage was declared, Indians would travel to buffalo jumps and dig out as many bones as they could find, regardless of their once-held beliefs that, quote, these bones were capable of rising back up into brand new buffalo, but times changed, end quote. S.C. Gwynn writes about the hide hunter's success that, quote, it would soon become the greatest mass destruction of warm-blooded animals in human history, end quote. I don't quite know if that's true because, well, the Native American's ancestors did kill all the mammoths and mastodons and all the subsequent animals that came with it. But it's still a mass destruction. And at this point, I can't take it anymore. I want to be done with all the death. 125 million skeletons of an animal that was never more than 30 million at a time. It makes me want to cry. By 1889, there were an estimated 1,091 buffalo left. Period. By 1895, there were 800. They went from being innumerable and widespread in 1679 to, as one biologist claimed, 85 by the late 1890s. I'm dubious of that extremely low number, but it's not impossible. Nothing seems impossible in this story. And thankfully, that, that's true, because the buffalo survived. Today, we have over 500,000 buffalo on this continent. And 30,000 of those are on national and public parks, or lands. The rest remain in private herds, with Ted Turner owning more buffalo than exists in the wild. So we're at the turning point of the story. Thank the Lord. Enter Teddy Roosevelt. I would love to do an entire podcast on Teddy Roosevelt, except Daniele Bellelli has already created a fantastic series on him with his History on Fire podcast, and I suggest you go listen to it. Theodore Roosevelt was born in 1854 in New York to a ridiculously wealthy family. Unfortunately for young Teddy, though, he suffered from headaches, fevers, and a very severe form of asthma that was so bad, he lived with the fear of suffocating. And his parents were sure he'd die young. He actually overheard them saying that one time. He was too physically weak and afraid to defend himself growing up, and he was bullied and roughed up. His older brother had to protect him. So to escape from this tough but privileged life, he read and studied. He actually read and studied a lot. He was a huge nerd, essentially. A huge asthmatic nerd. 
But eventually, he would overcome all of this and grow up to be the strong fighter, soldier, leader, and for our story, hunter, and later conservationist. I'd say he became so strong, he will live outlive humanity itself in the Black Hills on that little rock known as uh, Mount Rushmore. So I lied about the, the not being any more death part. Uh, it's unfortunately important to cover a few more solemn and sad passings of both beasts and humans uh, that were critical in the life of, of Theodore Roosevelt and to the life of this story. So bear with me. No pun intended. You know, Teddy Bear. By the age of 24, and motivated by his quest to hunt the largest mammal in America, Roosevelt headed west to Montana. It was 1883. So remember what the landscape was like for bison at that time. Still, with the help of an exceptional guide, he managed to find, shoot, and kill a bison. Afterwards, he would dance enthusiastically around the animal to celebrate his success. But you can't blame him for that joy. I felt the same joy while going hunting myself. It just seems irreverent after listening to me go on into such a great deal about the slaughter of the bison. And even he'd feel different, and maybe some irreverence after his second successful hunt that came in 1889, where he would later write, quote, so for several minutes I watched the great beasts as they grazed. Mixed with the eager excitement of the hunter was a certain half-melancholy feeling as I gazed on these bison, themselves part of the last remnant of a doomed and nearly vanished race. Few indeed are the men who now have, or evermore shall have, the chance of seeing the mightiest of American beasts. In all his wild vigor, surrounded by the tremendous desolation of his far-off mountain home. End quote. Some of that change in feeling may have been because the man himself had changed in between the two hunts. Shortly after that first successful hunt in 83, Theodore Roosevelt headed back to New York, where on February 14, 1884, he sat at his mother's side as she died from typhoid fever. And then hours later, on that same Valentine's Day, he would be at his wife's bedside as she too passed away. In his journal, Roosevelt drew a large X followed by the sentence, The light has gone out of my life. I've never lost anyone that close to me in my life, and I cannot even fathom the immense sadness uh, this must have brought him. But his story, and that of the buffaloes, does get better, I promise. After the immense loss, Roosevelt would travel between New York and the two North Dakota ranches he'd purchased to get serious about ranching and immerse himself in his long romanticized Western lifestyle. His biographer, Edmund Morris, would say about his two ranches, quote, $14,000 was a small price to pay for so much freedom, end quote. I hear that. I've been to both sections of the very out-of-the-way Theodore Roosevelt National Park, and both were breathtaking. Um, I drove overnight from central Wisconsin, stopping only twice, once for a mosquito-plagued rest stop homemade wrap, and the other for a 20-minute nap, a hot 20-minute nap because we couldn't roll the windows down on account of sad mosquitoes. I figured driving through some of the most boring landscapes in the nation made the most sense to do at night. Ultimately, I was right, but it's hard on the body and mind. Although it forced me to drive right by the National Buffalo Museum, which I wish I could have seen, although I was unaware of its existence at the time. Anyways, my friend and I arrived on the outskirts of the park as violent ground-to-sky lightning lit up the west and a bright pink, orange, and yellow gorgeous sunrise erupted in my rearview mirror. It was one of the best sunrises I've ever witnessed. Uh, I'll put pictures on the website. Soon afterwards, we turned off I-90 and headed north to that northern unit's entrance, 
uh, and after about 30 minutes, we knew we'd found it because right at the entrance sat a small group of about eight bison, like surrounding the Theodore Roosevelt National Park sign that you know people pull over to and take pictures with. It was, it was perfect. Minutes later, uh, while we were descending into the badlands of the park, we pulled over and took a short walk over to a sitting bison who began wallowing with joy in front of us. And then he'd stand up and he'd clumsily shake the dust from his massive shaggy coat and it would blow away in the wind. Oh, it was fantastic. The river uh, cut deep into the badlands and there was a hill with bison grazing on it that looked like an Albert Bierstadt painting. It was magical. It was a magical morning. And in the southern part of the park, we saw even more of the creatures and they seemed happy to be there, as were we. All, all, the, all the pictures will be on the site. It was a fantastic day. I do recommend people go there. But those places are where he had his ranches. And on those ranches, Roosevelt actually predicted the decline of the very Dakota's Badlands ranching business he was a part of. In the winter of 1886 to 1887, a now very infamous snowstorm wiped out 80% of the cattle population in the area. I read that cows who had survived the initial storm would climb snowdrifts that were so tall it allowed them to eat the leaves off of the tops of trees, only for said cows to get stuck in the branches, die, and be found in the spring up in the branches after the snow had melted. The NPS website has this to say about the experience. Quote, Although the ranching venture had spelled financial disaster for Roosevelt, the physically and psychologically transformative experience proved priceless. End quote. But this and other experiences would contribute to his growing ethics that would later earn him the moniker of the conservation president. He was more responsible for affording federal protection to land than any other president. And I believe because of his feelings and experiences with the bison, including his hunting them, he personally saved the buffalo from extinction. But more on that in a minute. Those 500,000 bison I mentioned way earlier that are alive on this continent can be traced back to two main herds from the late 19th century. One of those herds came from Yellowstone. Like most mountainous regions and rugged territories, Yellowstone was never ideal for buffalo, but its remoteness helped save them there from extinction. When ancient Indians used spears and atlatls, the bison learned to keep a distance of a spear throw away. When Indians gained the bow, the bison learned to stay an arrow shot away. When Europeans came with guns, there was no time for the vast majority of those great, clumsy, shaggy beasts, as Teddy Roosevelt affectionately calls them, to adapt. Although some may have, and these Yellowstone bison of the late 19th century may just be proof of that. It's not like the remaining bison got together and held a council and declared they were going into exile and hiding. No, their only thoughts were, hmm, where is the next good grass? And, oh yeah, those skinny animals that walk on two legs or ride my cousins can kill me without me even seeing them. So if I smell them, I'm running. They didn't know they were running out of numbers and going extinct. They only knew to follow the good grass. And just as easily as we took them out, thankfully we've brought them back. Only bringing them back has just taken a lot longer. By the mid-1890s, the shame of the past 20 years over the killing and disappearance of the bison began to finally set in, especially back east. And then, in 1894, a man named Ed Howell poached some of the last remaining buffaloes in Yellowstone. I'll let Paul Schulery in his book, Searching for Yellowstone, Ecology and Wonder in the Last Wilderness, tell the story of Howell's capture in the aftermath. Quote, The capture involved a risky rush by the veteran scout Felix Burgess on skis across a broad expanse of open snow to get within pistol range before Howell 
armed with a rifle, or his dog saw him coming. Burgess and the trooper then escorted Howell on an arduous return trip to Mammoth. As luck would have it, Emerson Ho, a young correspondent from Forest and Stream, was in the park at the time. And encouraged by park personnel, he wrote the story and rushed it back to George Bird Grinnell in New York, who published it in the magazine. End quote. The public's outcry was swift and loud. And on May 7, 1894, the Lacey Act was signed into law, giving protection to both birds and animals within Yellowstone. It may have been a bit too late, but still better late than never, especially if you're a bison. In 1902, even more federal help came to the aid of the bison when $15,000 was appropriated to purchase some from private herds and bring them to Yellowstone and other public lands. Three years later, which would turn out to be a good year for bison, Roosevelt would say in his annual message to Congress, quote, The most characteristic animal of the western plains was the great shaggy-maned wild ox, the bison, commonly known as buffalo. Small fragments of the herds exist in a domestic state here and there, a few of them in Yellowstone Park. Such a herd as that on the Flathead Reservation should not be allowed to go out of existence, either on some reservation or on some forest reserve like the Wichita Reserve or some refuge, Provision should be made for preservation of such a herd, end quote. Dan O'Brien would write about Teddy that, quote, no previous president, or president that followed, had more of a grasp of what extinction actually meant. And in 1905, no man was more powerful, end quote. The same year and month of his speech to Congress, the American Bison Society was formed in New York City at the Bronx Zoo by Roosevelt himself a Mr. William T. Hornaday, and a litany of other important conversationalists with the sole object of bringing bison owned on United States federal land to at least 20,000 by the 1930s. So a quick note about William T. Hornaday, as he plays such a central role in the resurrection of the bison in the early 20th century. Although this quick aside isn't that quick and it does get a little sad. Uh, William T. Hornaday, by 1882, after traveling the world in his pursuit of studying animals, had become head of the Smithsonian Museum's taxidermy collection. By the middle of that decade, he grew concerned at the rapid loss of the buffalo, and after realizing the museum's complete lack of enough material of the beast to study, decided to head to the Great Plains to remedy that situation, before that situation became impossible to remedy. Remember Miles City, Montana, where 5,000 hunters converging on what would become the last of the bison in the U.S.? That the same place, in fact, that Teddy would get his first bison? Well, in 1886, Hornaday was there, but was disappointed in what he saw. He actually returned again later that same year and explored even further into territory where bison don't typically roam. So yeah, he was a big conservationist, but for science, he and his team had killed and collected only three that first trip and 25 on the second. As even modern-day conservationists who understand the endeavor would admit, Conservation and hunting often go hand in hand. What becomes a little sad is that many of those 25 that he brought back to D.C. actually carried bullets in their meat and bones. I mean, old bullets. Some of them a decade old by the time the scientists downed them on that expedition. One of the bulls they shot even ran for 14 miles with the fatal wound before succumbing to it. Unfortunately for the scientists, it was too late in the day to harvest what they needed from that particular bull, so they headed back to camp. But when they returned the next morning to finish the job, they discovered they were way too late. The butchering had been completed, 
The meat, tongue, and hide had been taken, and the bones had been broken so that the marrow could be sucked out. Apparently Indians who had once called that ground their hunting land had no doubt taken advantage of the opportunity dropped at their feet. Maybe they'd even watched the whole disgraceful affair. Mostly, though, Hornaday was disgusted that these Indians had smeared red paint on one side, yellow paint on the other, and had tied red flannel to a horn. But don't give up on Hornaday yet. As Dan O'Brien writes, quote, William T. Hornaday was a good man, and after his second trip to the northern Buffalo Range, he understood one important thing. The buffalo were on the brink of extinction, and he was in a unique position to help stop that slide into oblivion. End quote. Back in D.C., Hornaday would make a legendarily beautiful and haunting exhibit of the buffalo that would inspire writers and Americans to wonder at the beast's future. Later, he'd become the first director of the New York Zoological Park, or Bronx Zoo, which happened to house quite a few living bison. So, under Roosevelt and Hornaday, the American Bison Society first mission was to bring buffalo to Yellowstone, the Wichita Mountains of Oklahoma, and to establish the National Bison Range in Montana. Unfortunately, though, that promising herd Roosevelt mentioned in his speech to Congress, uh, I quoted earlier, it actually did end up going to Canada, much to Congress's embarrassment. But it was no matter, because the ABS would eventually use bison held at the Bronx Zoo and other privately held animals to ultimately accomplish their mission. You know that Wondrous place I've mentioned quite a few times, the Wichita Mountains. In 1907, 15 bison boarded a train in New York City at the direction of Hornaday as a, quote, gift to the people for the express purpose of helping to preserve the American bison from ultimate extinction, end quote. Seven days later, those buffs would arrive in Oklahoma. Actually, a town called Cache, to be precise. Cache is just south of the current Wichita Mountains Wildlife Refuge, where those bison's Descendants still meander and and create wonder. At the time, in 1907, it was also the place where a lot of Comanche, you know, that empowered the summer moon, would eventually settle, including their quote-unquote greatest and last leader, if you could say the Comanche had a leader, of Quaynaw Parker. One day, I will learn y'all about that amazing story, but in the meantime, read S.C. Gwynn's masterfully crafted book. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service website has this to say about that fateful day. There was great excitement in the little southwestern Oklahoma town of Cash when the train pulled in with the heavily crated buffalo. The great Comanche chief, Quaynaw Parker, was among those who came to the station. The crates were transferred to wagons and hauled the 13 miles to the Wichitas. People from the whole countryside flocked into the Wichita forest to see the shaggy beasts. Mounted braves and their families rode in to see the bison of the plains that had provided meat and teepee skins for untold generations of their ancestors. End quote. Some of those American Indians had once survived solely on raids and bison. Yet their children and grandchildren had never even seen one until that day. By the fall of 1909, the United States government were the stewards of 158 bison. And they owed it all to the American Bison Society, the New York Zoological Society, the Wildlife Conservation Society, and President Theodore Roosevelt. Of course, there were countless other groups tribes, and individuals that helped pave the way that would inevitably change the America's manifest destiny and ensure that the wild lands, wildlife, and wild nature of America would always remain. Dan O'Brien writes, quote, Compared to what the government had been responsible for after the Louisiana Purchase, it was a pitifully small number of animals on a postage stamp of land. But it was a first step on a symbolic journey 
back toward the dignity that had been stolen with unparalleled brutality and greed. End quote. By the time it had dissolved in the 1930s, the American Bison Society had helped to further establish herds in the Fort Niobrara Reserve in Nebraska, Wind Cave National Park, and Custer State Park, and they absolutely reached their goal. They'd been the driving force behind the increase of buffalo in the national herd to over 20,000. Much like the bison, though, the ABS was saved from extinction, and in 2005, it was reestablished to advance efforts for ecological restoration of the bison to its historical grassland landscapes and ranges across the continent. Then, in 2014, the director of the Wildlife Conservation Society's Bison Conservation Program, and I'm now going to quote the National Park Service's website, helped facilitate the signing of the Buffalo Treaty by 13 indigenous nations as the first cross-border indigenous treaty creating an intertribal alliance between the United States and Canada. This treaty helped to restore bison to 6.3 million acres of tribal and First Nations lands. WCS, or the Wild Conservation Society, is also currently working with the United States, Canada, and the Blackfeet Nation to transfer bison from Elk Island National Park in Alberta to their bison ancestors' ranges on the Blackfoot Reservation in Montana. End quote. Although more work needs to be done, I can think of no better way to work towards a brighter future for my favorite creature. Why does it seem like when you tell the story of the bison, you ultimately are telling the story of its perpetual slaughter? Wouldn't it have been better to open this podcast with a happy story that intrigued me, like the cuteness of a light brown caramel-colored calf prancing alongside its mama under a double complete rainbow that someone recorded in the Badlands? I did recently see that video. Instead of the fact that people were outraged at the call to a coal north of the Grand Canyon? Isn't there a happy and fun way to talk about these silly and majestic woolly creatures? Are they always going to be gnawed on by Cole DiCaprio, murdered by Wyatt Earp, or shot at by an American Indian in our cinema? Will there ever be a way to talk about the bison without focusing on the many ways 14,000 years of human beings have excelled at killing them in North America? Unfortunately, I don't think there is. But what I do think and feel is infinite hope that these guys are not only coming back, but that they're thriving. I feel in the future we will be seeing a whole lot more of these guys in our pop culture, in our grocery stores, and most importantly, in our state and national parks and lands. I agree with, and mirror, the sentiments the NPS website says when it wrote, quote, To Theodore Roosevelt, the American bison was a symbol of wild nature and Western culture which he loved. End quote. It's impossible to tell the story of America, and especially of the West, without telling the story of the bison even with all its sad gruesomeness. But every year that goes by, more of the bison story is being written, and now that story is a happy one. I didn't quite think this fit anywhere into the narrative, but I do think it's important information, or at least interesting information. Um, in terms of those 30,000 public bison, Yellowstone's got anywhere from 2,300 to 4,500. The amazing Custer State Park in the Black Hills has over 1,400, which I feel like I've seen half of them. Uh, the undervisited but overly pretty Theodore Roosevelt National Park has anywhere from 350 to 750 animals. Badlands National Park, one of the only places I've seen so many bison that they looked like ants from far off, and of which I was surrounded on this on this dirt road. Oh, it was, it was fantastic. I'll put a video up on the website. They have, or they try to maintain 600, but often they exceed this number. I feel like I've seen more than that there. 
The beautiful Wichita Mountains of Oklahoma has got 650. Antelope Island in the Great Salt Lake of Utah has around 550. And their ancestors on that island were actually chosen personally by Hornaday uh, back in 1905. Wind Cave National Park, a place I witnessed two youngins play fighting for fun, which you can see on the website, has 400. There are 200 to 400 bison in the Henry Mountains of southeast Utah, which kind of blew my mind because I've been there and hiked there so many times, I had no idea that there were bison there. Now that I know, I am definitely looking for them next time I'm over there. Uh, the National Bison Range in Montana maintains about 350, which is the same amount that Fort Niobrara National Wildlife Refuge in Nebraska maintains. In Illinois, at Prairie State Park, you can find around 40. And if you're ever on the west side of Denver, on I-70, look on the either side of the highway, actually, near Genesee Park, because about 30 bison roam there. There's even a great trail on the southern end of the park where if you're lucky, you can get right up against the fence as the herd takes shelter in the wooded area from the hot summer sun. Uh, I have seen them. I have been there. Uh, while not living, you can see a small herd of 14 bison being perpetually driven forward by three Lakota warriors at Kevin Costner's Tatanka Museum um, that lays at the northern end of the Black Hills. I've also been there. It's gorgeous. Uh, that bronze statue of the bison and the three Lakota warriors is the third largest in the world. Uh, the museum... Uh, is also pretty nice on the inside, and it's a great tribute to both the Lakotas and the bison. Um, while this list is not definitive, uh, it's not the definitive place you can see bison, it, it's pretty exhaustive. Honestly, though, you can see bison anywhere. I've seen them in central Wisconsin, rest stops in Oklahoma, and even cooling themselves in a pond in someone's front yard in backwoods western South Carolina. Hopefully one day we will be seeing them in even more places and far more often than we do now. And I hope that day comes soon because every day that goes by without seeing a bison is a day not quite lived up to its potential. And lastly, there was so much I couldn't add. I left out the Northern Plains Wars, the Mormon beef incident, the fact that a bison's bull's bellows can be heard from three miles away, the Fetterman fight, the fact that most of those 500,000 bison have cow DNA in them, people like I left out people like Buffalo Jones, Samuel Walking Coyote, Harold Baines, Black Elk of Black Elk Speaks, and countless, and I mean countless Native Americans. And so many other stories, facts, people, tidbits. Uh, so I encourage everyone, and everyone still interested, to check out the sources for this story, which will be on the website. And to find your own sources. And, and be sure to email me some, some cool facts that I left out. Thanks for listening.